The reason that uh, Lewis and I asked John to share this report is because we live in a culture that um, may well actually become more and more oppressive for us in ways that we don't envision, that we don't anticipate, and uh, that Christians will be caught in the crosshairs. Uh, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And as one person said, we are high on his menu. We are uh, easy targets. And if we're following the Lord, we will be countercultural. We just will be. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus also said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I'm not sure if we really believe that. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Merry Christmas. I love Christmas. I, I love everything about it. I, I love the fun of it with my children, now with my grandchildren. I love the get-togethers, the decorations, the lights. My grandson, Nate, staying with us overnight and uh, uh, my other, other grandchildren as well just tonight. And, and uh, he goes around the house singing all the time in an operatic voice with a vibrato. And uh, we have to tell him not to sing at the table. These days it's carols, and Nate doesn't really care if he knows the whole song. He just blends them together creatively, whether they go together or not. Beth posted this. Today Nate was singing, Oh, come all ye faithful. He sang, Come and be faithful. Join in all the reindeer games. Okay. But the truth is, Christmas is actually about dealing with evil. It's about dealing with suffering. It's about dealing with sin. That's why Jesus came. And he came into a culture that was ruled by a government that oppressed the rights of the people that it governed. It, it was a government that would allow very few religious liberties. It was a government that was even willing to sanction the killing of babies. I want you to read with me from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. 
for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he said to them, I'm sorry, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I, too, may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord to the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, being, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Can you imagine any more stark contrast to this passage than what Lewis preached on last Sunday from Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And his, but his disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. How stark a contrast here. We were talking about Christmas at our staff meeting this past uh, Monday. And uh, Lewis made a, a, a great point. Uh, I know, who knew? <laughs> he made a, made a, a great point. Uh, that that the narrative that we all hear uh, at Christmas time that we that we see around us that we see in the billboards that we see in Christmas cards is the children's edited version of Christmas the the G-rated version but the Bible is an adult book for 
adults. And adults sift through things that we teach our children. And we teach them what's appropriate for them at the level that they are as they grow. Rightly so. But if we stop there, even in our own understanding of Christmas, then we miss the point of what Christmas is about. Um, Last Sunday, for example, uh, during our children's program, when Matthew 2 was read from, the sections about Herod were edited out. And rightly so. They should have been, and that was appropriate for the setting. But today's sermon is for the adults. Um, Actually, you'll notice in the bulletin that that the title of my sermon is uh, The Dark Side of Christmas that had nothing to do with the release of the Star Wars movie. Um, But if, if you think that that doesn't sound cheerful enough, look at the song below it. Joy to the world. The Dark Side of Christmas, Joy to the World. Okay, thank you, Gary. My alternate title was The Most Depressing Christmas Sermon Ever. I'm nothing if not perky and cheerful. In all of my years here, 32 years, 80, 90 Christmas sermons over these years, um, this is my second time to preach on this passage. And in fact, I don't ever recall ever hearing a sermon that included verses 13 to 23 of Matthew chapter 2 from anyone, anywhere, at any time. There's good reason why, because this section of the chapter lays bare the dark underbelly of Christmas, but it's essential to the story. Matthew 2, in fact, contains two stories. And I'm going to use some pastoral discretion and deal with the two stories in this chapter in reverse order so that next Sunday I'm going to be talking about the visit of the Magi. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll be more upbeat. I'll be good. I promise. But today I want to focus on the reason for the season. Now, I know we say Jesus is the reason for the season, and that's true, but you can also make the case Sin is the reason for the season. God's answer to the devastation that sin brings is the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, I'll explain this next Sunday, but by the time that you get to Matthew chapter 2, we fast forward from the manger probably more than a year, uh, maybe closer to two years, and Jesus may have been walking at this point. Joseph has plans to stay in Bethlehem indefinitely. It's the city of David. Uh, Ruth and Boaz live there. It's a good place to raise a child. And then suddenly at their house appear these magi from the east. They show up and, and then just as suddenly they have to flee for their lives. They made it out of town by at the most one day before Herod's death squad arrived. Exactly why did they have to flee for their lives? Because verse 16 tells us Herod became very enraged. Herod had had talked to the Magi as we read. He interrogated them as to the exact time that the baby was born. He said he wanted to worship him too, which was a blatant lie. Herod was going to kill Jesus. 
And then he was going to kill Mary and Joseph. And then he was going to kill the Magi. Anything true to what Herod did, that's the way that Herod operated. But the Magi did not return to Herod. And Herod was not used to being disobeyed. The word enraged in verse 16 describes a violent fury that blinds rational thinking. Okay? That's what the Greek word means. What do we know about Herod the king from history? And I've told you a little bit about this man before in other contexts. But uh, I'll repeat a few things. Uh, he killed his wife, Mary Amney. He killed his mother, Alexandria. He killed two of his five sons. Family reunions were a little tense. The Roman Emperor Augustus once made a royal joke. And this joke was, it is safer to be Herod's huos than Herod's huios. The emperor was assuming that a Jewish king was not supposed to eat pork. So his joke was, it's safer to be Herod's pig, huos, than to be Herod's son, huios. You get the joke. If Herod, if Herod the king had not been a friend of uh, Mark Anthony or Octavian, he would have been on death row in Rome. So that's what Herod was like. Uh, in fact, when he was near death, a group, uh, he had a group of elite Jewish citizens arrested, had them uh, put uh, uh, under, under uh, imprisonment with orders that the mo at the moment he died, they were to be executed so that there would be many tears in Jerusalem. Thankfully, those orders were not carried out. So this is a man that's sent sending killing squads into Bethlehem because Jesus uh, would have probably been uh, older at the time, one or two. Herod cast a, a large net, not only Bethlehem, but the vicinity around Bethlehem, and he killed all the babies under the age of three. How was this done? I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't even think about that. How many baby boys were killed? Again, I don't know. But from population estimates at the time, guesses range between 10 and 30 baby boys. And I'm going to speculate here. But given the age that Jesus would have been at the time, my guess is it would have been likely for Mary to have known these other mothers and to have known these babies or some of them. What kind of man would do such a thing? Well, we have parallels for this all down history. There were many Herods, just by different names, over the centuries. And even in our lifetime, and even in our country, with some terrorist attacks. And just imagine what it would take for somebody to walk down the nursery and, and look at the small children that we have there. What kind of men would do such a thing? He is the embodiment of sin, of depravity, of brutality, of violence. What kind of man? Well, in verses 19 to 23, Herod died. We know from history that his kingdom was divided among his three sons, the three that were left, by the way. And Archelaus ruled over the region that included Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And this particular son was almost as bad as his brutal father. Uh, at one point, uh, he um, 
had two men killed for pulling down a, a Roman golden eagle that Herod had placed over the temple gate. And it was during Passover. There were thousands of Jews there. And the report is that uh, he closed up the gates and had his killing, his killing squads go through and just decimate the Jewish crowds that were there. So instead of settling again back at Bethlehem, they returned to Nazareth. And that's how the chapter ends. He shall be called a Nazarene. And there Jesus lived for another 30 or so years. Simple story, right? It's said that, <clears throat> I said that the Bible is a book for adults. It's also for adult minds. Uh, the Bible has been called a, a book in which a child may wade or an elephant may swim. There are different levels of depth. And there is a deeper truth hidden in this passage that is easily overlooked. We overlook it simply because of familiarity, I think. I want us to look at verses 17 and 18 and consider two words in particular, Rachel and Rama. So in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, what is this about? Here's, here's the importance of this Old Testament quotation. Texts bring their contexts with them. If I were to say to you, and this is the audience participation part of the sermon, if I were to say to you, joy to the world, you would respond. Exactly. If I were to say to you, hark the herald angels sing. Okay, texts bring their their context with them. And this is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And Matthew's Jewish readers, the Gospel of Matthew, was written to Jews, and his Jewish readers would know exactly what the rest of this chapter was about. It's about God's restoration. It's about God's encouragement. So what I want you to do is to turn back with me to the book of Jeremiah. I want us to look at chapter 31, and have a brief overview, and then I want to make a couple of comments about these two words, Rachel and Rama. In Jeremiah 31, we read in verse 30, in chapter 30, verse 22, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And then verse 24 ends, in the latter days you will understand this. Then chapter 31 begins, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. Now, Israel was the northern kingdom. You remember that the two kingdoms of, of the Jews had split into the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity. The southern kingdom was being taken away into captivity in Babylon, the northern kingdom to Assyrian regions. The Assyrians had later been conquered by the Babylonians. A little bit of history thrown in there, but here's the point. He's speaking to the people of the nor about the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. So I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Look at verse three. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness 
And he speaks about themes of joy as they return to the land, as they're restored at some point in the future. They will be restored. Look at verse 7. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, he says, I am bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. No one is too far away from me to bring him back into my arms. Verse 8 continues uh, at the end of it. He says, they will return here. Verse 9, they will come. I will lead them. Verse 9 continues, I am a father to Israel. Over and over again, there's comfort here. There's comfort here. There's suffering but comfort. There's suffering but comfort. And look at verse 13. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy and will comfort them. So there's suffering and comfort. I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance. My people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So there's comfort in the midst of suffering. And look at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted. So there's comfort in the midst of sorrow, but she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children will return to their own territory. And he continues to comfort in the midst of the suffering. Comfort in the midst of the suffering. All of that is about the restoration of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in verses uh, 23 to 27, are those verses, or 26 rather, th- these verses are about the southern kingdom, Judah. Thus, verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again they will speak the, this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. Verse 25, I, for I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. Now, do you see, I, I, I hope you capture a little bit of what's going on here in the context of these two words, Rachel and Rama. Are you still with me? Rachel and Rama. Why Rachel? Why of all the Old Testament characters focus on that one lady? Well, because she was Jacob's most beloved wife, but she also suffered. She was the one who said, give me children or I die. And ironically, she died for her children, as it were. She died giving birth to Benjamin. Here in Jeremiah 31, Rachel is pictured poetically as as alive, as the embodiment of all Jewish women who have suffered and who are now suffering. All these Jewish women watching their children move into this captivity, into deportation, children being robbed from her by these earthly kings. That's the picture. And why Rama? Why of all places uh, on the the map in in, uh, Israel would would Rama be picked? Because Rama was the place where exiles headed into captivity from Babylon. 
That's where they were herded. If you want to think of, of those Nazi train stations where all the captives are herded in together, that's what it was like. It was a place of grief. And it was a place of deportation for both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. At Ramah, Jeremiah wrote, Rachel weeping for her children. And by the way, on the march to Babylon, any children who slowed down the march were slaughtered right there. There's no more perfect poetic voice. There's no more perfect place to describe suffering in Israel than the weeping of Rachel at Ramah. And there's no better place to invoke that contents, that, that context than here speaking about the weeping of the Bethlehem mothers, Rachel weeping for her children. And here's why the quotation is important. Matthew's Jewish readers would have known that Jeremiah 31 is about God's restoration of all things. Because are you still with me in Jeremiah 31? We're getting to a good place here. You, you want to see this. Jeremiah 31. I want you to look at verse 31. He's after after. Well, three times he says, behold, days are coming. Verse 31. Um, and uh, he's, he said it already in verse 27. Behold, days are coming. He'll say it again in verse 38. Behold, days are coming. So let's look at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant that he established with Israel, and it was a conditional covenant. And if they violated the conditions of that covenant and disobeyed their Lord, they would be judged. And that is exactly what they're enduring here. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, all of that, that uh, co the consequences of sin are being suffered here uh, in Jeremiah 31. But he says, I'm going to have to make a new covenant, not like that covenant. Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there's going to be some inner internal ability to obey that's not present now. We know that that is the Holy Spirit that came as the new covenant was inaugurated in the blood of the ultimate sacrifice. And this is what he says. I will be their God. And they will be my people. This will be an internal covenant. This will be an unconditional covenant. Sin will be removed. This is God's plan. And he concludes in verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Do you know how a covenant was ratified in the Old Testament? It was ratified by blood. The Hebrew term for make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. It was a blood ratification. Keep that in mind. So. Think about this. 
I began by asking this question. What kind of man would do such a thing as what Herod did? In one sense, Herod's action is, is Satan's response to the kingdom of God breaking into history. But the thing is, if you look at Herod the man, in the eyes of God, he and I are in the same category. I too am a sinner. And without Christ, I am just as lost as Herod. Scripture says that all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. It doesn't say that they, we all fall equally short. I know that. But the text does say that we all do fall short. So what kind of a man would do such a thing? The brutal answer is a man whose nature is like mine. Paul the Apostle understood this very deeply because before he was saved, he tortured Christians to death. And even after he was saved, he called himself the chiefest of sinners. We all need God's amazing grace to be rescued from our sins, from ourselves. So, what kind of man would do such a thing? Well, here we are. Two more questions. How could a loving God allow such a thing to happen? And another question. How could a loving God allow such things to happen to me? What is an all-good, all-powerful God doing about evil? It's not a new question. Over the centuries, people, God's people have asked God, do you really understand? Almost all the prophets either said or implied, Lord, you don't know what it's like down here. Job put it most bluntly, and I put actually some text in your bulletin notes. I'm going to read from Job 10. He said, I loathe my life. I give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? In your years as a man's years? And the implication was, God, if you haven't lived in skin, then you don't understand. Job could also say, God, you have taken my sons. And yet later, Job makes this astonishing statement in Job 19. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he uses the Hebrew word goel. A kinsman Redeemer. Come back to that thought in a sec. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. That's Job. In the book of, in the book of Ruth, Naomi, who was yet another mother from Bethlehem. Naomi could complain, God has taken my sons. Malon, Kilion, they're dead. My sons. And yet God gave her a, same word, Goel, a kinsman redeemer, because it first was Boaz, and then Obed, and then Jesse, and then David, and on down to Jesus. The Bethlehem mothers would say, God has taken away our sons. How can God understand? In order for God to understand, he would have to lose a son. In the incarnation, 
God the Father lost the immediacy of fellowship with the Son. And that began a very slow terminal illness that lasted for 30 years until the Son rejoined the Father. Jesus was made flesh for the purpose of becoming a goel, a kinsman redeemer, a human who could redeem all people, who would absorb the evil of the universe into his infinite self and then proclaim of all creation, it is finished. God does not ignore your suffering. He enters into it. He identifies with it. He absorbs it. And as horrific as the killing of those babies was, Jesus' death on the cross is truly where the greatest quantity of evil and the greatest intensity or quality of evil join to produce the greatest possible evil on the most innocent victim ever. Isaiah, in a passage we've quoted quite often, especially these days, 800 years before Jesus. This is the last scripture on your notes, I think. Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and yet we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Not only did he take your sins, but all the suffering you've ever had, the rejection, the loneliness, the trauma of broken relationships, the divorce, the agony, the unspeakable loss of a child to disease, God on the cross thought of you. And he understands as no human can. Why would he do that to himself? What is God achieving in the incarnation? Here's what he's achieving. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he's pleased. There's a groaning of life in this present world followed by the, the glory that is to come. In our studies in Romans 8, remember those? Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And this is embodied in the Christmas story. Jesus came to rescue us and to redeem creation. Romans 8 also says, For the creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation groans and suffers until now. And the most one of the most horrific scenes of that groaning is the story of what happened in Bethlehem right after Joseph and Mary escaped. And it's the very reason why Jesus came. So my question is, have you come to him? Do you admit that you are a sinner? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That you cannot save yourself and acknowledge that God took the initiative, became flesh, and paid the debt of sin. Remember what the, what the angels told the shepherds? Today in the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When you receive him as your Savior, his sacrifice is applied to your sins. And you are forgiven. Well, one thing is crystal clear. Matthew 2 is about the real world. Not a Santa fantasy world. 
Jesus came into the world to deal with real sin and real suffering. Came to deal with a place where Christians can lose their business for not baking a cake. Where parents have strokes, where children are afraid uh, of parents who might abuse them. Where parents are afraid to leave children alone for an extended period of time because of what they might do to themselves. Where marriages are wounded, where wives have to adjust to husbands who are debilitated and can no longer take a walk with them outside. If you're hurting, I'm glad you came because Christmas is about hope for people whose hearts are broken. Because of Jesus, we have help now in the present. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But there's also hope for the future. Listen to this from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be among them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And it's all because of Jesus. Unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand. This is why we can sing Joy to the World. And we're going to close by singing a song that's really about the future. If you look, listen to the lyrics of Joy to the World, it's not a Christmas song. It's more of a song about the second coming of Christ, when all of these things will be put into effect. Joy to the world, the Lord has come.